Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Danger Room, the X-Men Comics Commentary Podcast. My name's Gene Gray. <laughs> I'm Jeremy. And we're here to discuss the Uncanny X-Men number 135, the July 1980 issue, on sale April 15th, 1980, and this one is titled Dark Phoenix. It can't control it! Or as the cover proclaims, defeated by Dark Phoenix. And this cover is an homage to the Neil Adams uh, number 56 cover. Totally, yep. Where, what was it, the... uh, The living monolith was crushing the logo. This cover homage I recognize, even though I didn't recognize the last cover homage. I, I was hoping to stump you twice in a row. I like this cover a lot. I mean, maybe it's just because it has the homaginess of it, but she just, she looks like, she looks crazy. Yeah. She looks evil. She is not, she's not treating these X-Men well. And in the background, you see, uh, well, all of the rest of the X-Men, Colossus, Nightcrawler, Cyclops, Wolverine, and Storm just laying on the ground. In the original, they're all standing up. So it's slightly different. Mm. Um, I guess uh, I find it interesting uh, that they decided not to draw her feet um, in this issue, or I mean in this cover, because there's such a perspective going on here that I wonder when he got down to the feet if he was like, boy, I don't know how to do this. <laughs> well, I mean, one of her foot feet, feet, one of her feet is there. It's just covered up by, defeated by Dark Phoenix. Presumably he didn't write that in there. I have someone, no idea how that someone works. Someone covered his the foot with it. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, and then the UPC covers the other foot. On the uh, that that old cover with the living monolith, does can we see his feet in that cover? Let me check. <laughs> These are important uh, details, folks. Yes, you can. Oh, are they good feet? Although there's no UPC on the version that I'm looking for, so oh. maybe that's because it was from the 60s. But I don't know. Uh, I, if there was a UPC, it would cover. One of his feet. Yeah, they're good feet. Okay. All right. But he's he's standing in a different position than Jean Grey is standing in. Is he is he standing like more upright rather than kind of at an angle like she is? Uh, he is like if you divided the cover at an angle from the top left corner to the bottom right corner, mm-hmm. he is he would be more in line with that line. Got it. Than she is. She is not, she doesn't really seem to have much of a line. Yeah. He's not entirely on that line either, but he would be, he's much closer to it than she is. Okay. Well, whatever. It's still, it's still, it's a great cover. I like this cover a lot. Um, I don't have anything else to say about it. So let's open this thing right up, huh? Did we mention that it's by John Byrne and Terry Austin? No, we didn't, but, but you just did. So now we did. Yay. <laughs> Uh, the story, Dark Phoenix, is written by and co-plotted by Chris Claremont and John Byrne, who also serves as a penciler. Terry Austin is the inker. Tom Orzachowski is the letterer. Bob Sharon is the colorist. Jim Sallykrupp is the editor. And Jim Shooter is the editor-in-chief. Witness the birth of a god. So the uh, the mutant skyship is exploding in the words of Dark 
Phoenix, which is pretty, I like this panel. Apparently, this is the birth of a god, the god being Dark Phoenix. Mm-hmm. Her name is Jean Grey, a young woman of blah, 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 blah. Yet everything's about to change, everybody. Um, this issue really drives home the maybe this is a first issue for somebody because the first couple of pages essentially reintroduce the reader to all of the characters. Wasn't that true of every issue? I don't know. I just felt like this issue was a little bit more so. And I mean, they'll do this time after time. So like on the next page, you see a panel of Colossus and it says Colossus. And then he kind of explains like, in my armored form, I will land first and I won't take any damage. And then I can help save the rest of the X-Men. And then Nightcrawler's like, I'll have to teleport down to the ground because Storm is the only one who can fly. You know, just stuff like that. I guess. I'm not complaining. I mean, it, it, it's all written well. It's all uh, artisted well, drawn well. But it's just, it really just like, I don't know if they got to this issue. They're like, man, we might be alienating some new readers. So we better reintroduce everybody to, to these characters. I like how... Uh... Nightcrawler bamfs, and when he reappears, he's still moving at the same momentum, but he is angled differently. So is he, he, is he... Like, I never really considered that he could do that. Is he angled to the side? Yeah, he's basically angled uh, perpendicular to the ground, right. so that now, instead of falling, he's rolling, which is pretty neat. Yeah, so... It's a cool concept. They've, they've definitely established in the comic book that, like, whatever momentum he has going into a teleport, he has going out of the teleport, which is a nice limitation. But it seems as though if he's falling straight down and he does this teleport, is he able to actually orient the position in which he comes out of his teleport? Because I don't think he does this in the future too much. Apparently... <laughs> the answer is yes. And I don't know about, I mean, it's it's a good use of his power that if they don't use it more often, they should. Well, they do because they'll be like, oh, Nightcrawler, you can just teleport. And he'll be like, negative. If I teleport now, I'll be smooshed when I hit the ground. Because I was always like, as a kid, I was like, well, why doesn't he, if he's falling, why doesn't he teleport so that he comes shooting upward? And when he hits that arc and stops and to come back down, that's when he teleports on the ground and essentially isn't moving anymore. Yeah, maybe I'm just looking at the angle wrong, and it's it's still a downward. Maybe he's not actually on the ground. I don't know. Well, I don't know, because I was wondering about this myself, because it's, it's kind of a confusing orientation. But with the way that the rain is positioned, because it's raining, by the way, uh, he is definitely rolling sideways out of his teleport. Oh, that's true. So he can do that, and that's cool, <laughs> and he never does it again. Yep. Well, maybe. I don't know. Certainly not later in, in the comics, but uh, that's great. Storm grabs a hold of Wolverine to bring him to the ground. She thinks to herself that everyone is accounted for save Cyclops, and she sees that Phoenix is going after Cyclops. So she decides she can't afford to take the risk that Phoenix might be going in for the kill. Swoops in, Wolverine grabs Cyclops, and Aurora uses a gust of wind to separate uh, the two parties. Phoenix goes one way, and Storm carrying Wolverine carrying Cyclops goes the other way. And then they land safely. The X-Men try to collect themselves to figure out what they're going to do next, but before they really can, uh, Phoenix swoops back in. Your admirable ploy, Storm, but escaping me won't be that easy. Ask not for pity for Dark Phoenix, my love. There is none in her. Why are you attacking us? For pity's sake. Why? She strikes Attack like the angel. She does. Yes. Uh, let's see. So uh, 
Colossus picks up a tree because he wanted to tangle her up in the branches, which is kind of a silly plan. I mean, she just blew up the sky ship and caused all the X-Men to go flying out. What's this tree going to do? <laughs> if I can tangle her in the branches of this tree. But apparently she's reading his thoughts. Yell at Snare, no one, Colossus! And she turns him from metallic to his fleshy self while he's still carrying the tree and thereby uh, causing him to lose all of his strength, so which looks like it pretty much breaks his back. Yeah, if you look at the panel, I mean, there's if there's any sort of momentum happening here, like his back and his legs are broken. But apparently Wolverine, Wolverine is... ...into the rescue to get underneath the tree, and maybe that's the only thing that saves Colossus. Because as soon as Wolverine gets underneath, Gene changes the uh, tree to a solid gold tree. Which I think is kind of stupid. It must weigh tons, says Wolverine as he's holding it. <laughs> I'm right, it does. <laughs> so Wolverine and Colossus in his fleshy form are now underneath a giant golden tree. So and somehow not dead. Yeah, neither of which are dead. But I don't want to, well, I do. A little bit of realism, if you will. So they they did this in Secret Wars 2, the Beyonder goes to the um, Heroes for Hire building, and he has like a quarrel with Luke Cage and Power Man. And spoilers, spoilers for those of you uh, who haven't read Secret Wars two yet. But anyways, he goes there, and uh, they're having a—I don't know if they're having a quarrel over money or whatever. But the Beyonder's like, "Well, if money's your problem, I'll fix that." And so he turns the building into solid gold. The building can't contain the weight of the solid gold, so it, like, crashes in on itself. But then, like, all of the superheroes and the police have to get together to cover it up because if there's a solid gold building in the middle of New York and everybody grabs some of that solid gold, that would destroy the economy. <laughs> so, I mean, it, there was, it was really well, really well handled in the Secret Wars 2 story because they're like, well, what would happen if we turned a skyscraper into gold and it crashed down and anybody could just grab some gold? Uh and so they did, uh, but this tree, like, they don't deal with this solid gold tree that's now in the middle of New York. Well, they do talk about it. They do talk about it, but it's not like, oh my god, we gotta do something about this gold tree, it can't be here. So presumably, in the Marvel Universe, there's a golden tree in the middle of the park somewhere. Yeah. Well, maybe I'm overthinking Wonderful. it. Maybe there will be a classic X-Men dedicated to the, what happened to the golden tree. <laughs> Yeah. Anyways, uh, so Storm begs Gene, no more, I beg you, we're friends, let us help you. Dark Phoenix has no friends. She says, it's too late for you, it's too late for me, it's too late for the universe. Storm, Storm reflects that Jean was last like this when she saved the universe, but she, that, at that point her power was tempered by joy and love, and now she senses no joy no love, just sadness and pain and an awful, all-consuming lust. So she shoots Dark Phoenix with a lightning bolt. Jean's like, bring it on. Take your best shot. And then she says, I'd rather end this quickly. And she, I guess, repels all of the lightning energy back to Storm. Knocking Storm down, presumably unconscious. Uh, she says, I can pick your mind clean in the blink of an eye. Know your plans the moment you think of them. Storm. Images hitting me through the psychic rapport I share with Jean. Black flames consuming her soul. Mystical illusions. I don't understand. Lost. Drowning. Alone. Can't speak in complete sentences. 
So last issue, it was psionic rapport. This issue is psychic rapport. I feel like last issue, it was both. I, th- I feel like it jumped back and forth. It could have. Um, it started out as psionic. It was psionic for a while. And then by the end, it was psychic again. Nightcrawler wonders what can they do, and without giving Cyclops a chance to respond, Phoenix says, Not a thing, Nightcrawler! And she hits them a hundred different ways at once. Ouch. Yeah, that's a lot of ways to hit someone. (laughs) And the last two X-Men drop in their tracks. By striking you down, I cut myself free of the last ties binding me to the person I was, the life I led. And in the next panel, I look like I'm on Broadway. (laughs) Jazz hands. (laughs) You and I are quits now, X-Men. Our paths will cross no more. My destiny lies in the stars. In the stars. (laughs) Oh, yeah. She reaches for the sky, summoning the lightning, laughing as the awesome bolts of energy caress her body like a lover. She wants that lightning so bad. We cut five minutes earlier to the Hellfire Club where uh, Sebastian Shaw and Senator Kelly are discussing the events of the evening, looking over the, uh, the, uh, the ambulance that is carting away Harry Leland and Jason Wingard. No, weird, no word of Donald Pierce. It does say here, like last issue, we speculated that Harry Leland was dead because of the way that Cyclops and Wolverine had a little exchange. But here it says that uh, the X-Men rampage through the building, terrorizing guests and leaving two club members, Harry Leland and Jason Wingard, in need of immediate hospitalization. But then the Senator Kelly says, Sebastian, I am so sorry about Leland. It's, it's almost as like he is dead, but he isn't dead. Mal- but he is dead. Spoilers, he's not dead. <laughs> well, nobody <laughs> dies. So uh, Shaw is like, wow, Robert, that's very kind of you. And he thinks back to himself, the X-Men were our helpless uh, prisoners, yet they still, they escaped and defeated us. We underestimated them, and Leland and Wingard paid the price. So right there, again, it's like, he's dead, he's not dead. He's dead, he's dead. Still no word of Pierce. No, Pierce is in pieces somewhere. A uh, captain of the police shows up and says, uh, my, my men have searched the club. There's no sign of the muties. And Senator Kelly flips out, obviously, Captain, because the X-Men are no longer inside the building. I could have told you that. Why <laughs> did you ask me? Mr. Shaw saw them running towards Central Park. I suggest you show some initiative and get your people in there before they get away. And the cop is like, uh, you know... I'm not really a superhero. I'm gonna I'm gonna say no. What you call the Avengers Fantastic Four or Shield? Shaw says, by all means, do so, Captain. And that's when he brings out maybe a longer term plan. There is an alternative, albeit a long term one, that would deal most effectively with this mutant menace. And at the same time it would be completely unquestionably under federal government control. Oh, do tell what's that? Sentinels. Pum 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 What's a sentinel? I don't know. The cop says, Captain, something's happening in the park and we completely shift gears. Lightning bolts as bright as the sun itself striking the park. It's incredible, impossible. What could be causing it? Shaw instantly knows that it's Storm, the Weather Witch. This is her kind of stunt because I know her really well and we've tangled so often that I know her energy signatures. Uh, He comments the bolts are building in intensity when all of a sudden a giant 
phoenix bird appears. And Shaw says, Phoenix! And Kelly presumably says, Saints preserve us. I don't know. Do you think Shaw would shout out Phoenix at this? Would anybody? I I don't know. Do they know her name? Do they know her name? Do they Or are they shouting, like, the bird, Phoenix? I don't know. Like, has Shaw even seen this Phoenix effect to the point where he would know, oh my god, that's Phoenix. Hmm. Eh, maybe, maybe not. Doesn't matter. But maybe now, Senator Kelly yelling Phoenix. Get ready for some cameos, dear listeners, because we got maybe a whole bunch maybe it's of them. The captain. Yeah, the captain's like Phoenix. So first cameo, we get uh, uh, Mister Fantastic in his lab, who apparently rang the red alert when he traced some sort of energy signature that was even stronger than Galactus. And Ben Grimm was in the shower, just getting all lathered up. Why does he wash? He's got a, he's probably pretty dirty. He's made of rocks. Yeah, but I mean, he's made of rocks, so who cares? It's not like he's smelly, because he probably doesn't sweat. Yeah, but, you know, he, he collects some smelly dirt. He's got to get it out. He's got to wash between the rocks. Don't you think he would just hose himself off? He, you know, wants to have some semblance of humanity. Okay. Leave the guy alone! <laughs> it's not his fault he's rocky. It's Reed Richards. Spider-Man sees the flame bird image, and at that point, his spider sense went crazy. Doctor Strange, uh, who is putting back the Book of Hells back on his bookshelf, uh, also sensed images of great mystic power, passion, and evil. But what meaning do they have for Doctor Strange? Such a selfish guy. (laughs) What does this mean for me? Because if it doesn't mean anything, I'm going to go back to reading about Hells. (laughs) The silver surfer who is surfing around the universe... He uh, senses a kindred soul, a child of the stars, so like the Silver Surfer, and yet not like me at all. Hmm. She is human, flawed, and that flaw bids fair to destroy her. I must aid her if I can. Dot, dot, dot. Little and pro- you should check out my adventures in Epic Illustrated number one. Well, Silver, Sur- Silver Surfer was a character at this point, wasn't he? Oh, yeah. 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 He had his own comic already. Yeah, that's what I, I thought he Call was a Silver Surfer. Was he, he? He had been in the Fantastic Four. Yeah, did he have like a mid '60s or early '70s book? Yeah, something like that. Okay, Seven, I think he had a '70s book. I think he first appeared in the '60s and then got his own book maybe in the late '60s, early '70s. He G- probably just had two or three books. Yeah, probably. Gene is well. Phoenix is flying through space now. I'd like to say this is what I like about the Marvel Universe is how. Things, big things, when big things happen, everybody like, you know, that you get these little panels of, oh, that registered on my geekometer. Right. And, and it would be curious to see if any of, I don't think any of these people will ever show up again. No, I don't think so. Uh, but sometimes, I don't know if it's true in this story, but you'll actually go read in their own story that month and they'll have a similar panel by, oh, we just got a crazy reading. I think the X-Men are on it, and they'll go back to their own adventure. Right. I don't know if it's the case this time, but... Uh, so she goes flying off. Epic Illustrated number one. And as she's... Get on it. Uh, yeah. I doubt it. <laughs> Maybe the whole issue is about him trying to find Phoenix and him failing miserably. <laughs> he, she, Phoenix! Phoenix! I can't find her anywhere. So she goes flying around. Uh, she's heading out to the galaxy, but before she leaves, she passes the path of one Hank McCoy flying in a Quinjet. Which she completely ignores, thankfully, because she probably would have just destroyed it. Mm-hmm. 
So he lands uh, right where the energy took off from, which is where the X-Men are all passed out. He notes that the rain has stopped. Mm -hmm. And uh, he sees that the X-Men are all passed out, and he says, uh, Scott, Scotty, it's Hank. I hear you, old buddy. (coughs) Throat raw. Can hardly think. I'm okay. See to the others. My God. That solid gold oak tree should solve New York's fiscal crisis for sure. And there you go. <laughs> or destroy it. <laughs> yeah, it lifts the gold tree up, allowing Colossus and Wolverine to come out from underneath why somehow. Didn't, why, didn't Col- why didn't Colossus just armor up and like throw it off of him? He can never armor up again. Jean Grey <laughs> removed his power for good. Wow. And I didn't think Beast was this strong. He has been shown to be this strong in the Avengers. They kind of have... Like, upped his power. Oh, okay. Like, he was lifting, like, 600-pound barbell weights on with one finger. Yeah, oh, okay. I was going to say, like, this tree made of wood is probably 600 pounds. Out of gold, it's probably more. But One finger. Whatever. <laughs> so they're, they get onto the Quinjet, and they're heading off to Angel's New Mexico home. But on the way, Beast says uh, that he heard the police call about the X-Men, so he erased the tape to see if he could come and help. I guess once an X-Man, always an X-Man. Hank's hiding it well, but that choice is tearing him apart. He loves being an adventure. I hope we can make it up to him. How does Colossus, uh, Cyclops know that? I don't know. <laughs> He's really good at reading body language. And uh, so Beast, or not Beast, Angel and the Professor are actually at the home, I guess, waiting for the X-Men to arrive. And they've got like a sat link up to uh, uh, Muir Island where they're talking to Moira McTaggart. Poor I don't Ban- think the X-Men have contacted them yet. I don't think, I don't they think so they're, they're coming. Angel's like, can I take my costume off yet? <laughs> no, Beast. Or, or no, Angel. I like to see how you walk around in that skin-tight uniform of yours. You know Magneto designed this, right? (laughs) Yes, he was a very good fashion designer. We were friends. Have I told you that yet? (laughs) Oh, no, 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 I haven't. (laughs) Poor poor Banshee in this comic gets no lines. The only thing he gets is one panel where he's bringing Moira some tea. He's referred to the man she loves, Sean Cassidy, Banshee, a retired X-Men. I didn't say he wasn't referred to. He just doesn't get any lines. He's thinking to himself. No, he's not. <laughs> he's not thinking anything. There's sure no bubble cloud above his head. I sure did make some good tea, boyo. <laughs> uh, so the professor, uh, he detected some giant-sized X-Men. No, I mean, sorry, giant-sized psychic H-bomb-like power. But the effect passed quickly. And Moira agrees. Phoenix is out of control. If you want a convenient buzzword description for her, cosmic fits the bill nicely. Gene has gone cosmic, everybody. Angel thinks to himself, Moira sounded terrified. I've never seen and I've never seen the professor like this. Not so much scared as haunted. Professor, what's happened? Um. The, sim- the, the simple explanation is, Warren, that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Phoenix is the ultimate expression of Gene's potential as a psi. Too much power, I fear. Too soon. Gene is too young. She lacks the uh, awareness necessary to control her now limitless abilities. We must return to New York, Angel, at once. I am partly to blame for this tragedy. I must do what I can to resolve it, whatever the cost. I hope they um, they don't pass the X-Men on the way. I was wrong, actually. I'm rereading this. The X-Men are actually heading to the mansion. The Avengers mansion or the 
X-Mansion. The X-Mansion. Oh. As the Quinjet arrows across the Bronx towards the X-Men's Westchester County headquarters, let's turn our attention Ooh. westward across the continent to New Mexico. My so bad. Everybody's heading to... The mansion. Different. Well, their professor's headed to New York, but I'm sure he'll get to the mansion somehow. Somehow. Gene is now in space, flying around. And this will be the last we see of the X-Men for a while, which is kind of neat. Yeah. So she's flying around. She passes by the Star Corps, which has Dr. Corbo on deck. And uh, he's like, I don't know what that was. Some kind of energy beam. Incredibly powerful. Just another cameo. <laughs> Vectoring sunward from the Earth. Lock all sensors on it. I want a full scan. But before he can get the full scan, uh, Phoenix slingshots around the sun going back in time. And she saves the whales in 1985. I I thought that too she (laughs) loops around the sun skimming its surface and using the slingshot effect to boost her speed a thousandfold now we know that Star Trek used this uh, same thing and didn't Superman also use this to go back in time Superman flew flew counterclockwise around the planet oh okay he didn't fly around the sun but I've read some things that while he was flying around the earth the earth going backwards, like he wasn't actually spinning the earth the opposite way on its axis. That was just supposed to be a visualization of time moving backwards. Do you know what I mean? Oh. But when you watch the movie, it just looks like he's flying opposite around the planet, causing it to spin backwards on its axis, which is what moves everything back in time. It really doesn't make any sense. None of it makes any sense. But whatever. It was the best Superman movie we've ever had. <laughs> so so the slingshot around the sun idea, I wonder where that comes from. Well, I think the idea here, it's much more plausible than using the slingshot effect to go back in time, is that the sun has such a powerful gravitational force that if she's able to leverage the potential energy of going around the sun she can she can use that gravitational speed to whip her off i guess does that make any sense but where does that come from where does that idea come from because i'm sure it doesn't come from x-men or star trek no i'm sure it's isaac asimov or uh robert heinlein or somebody kind of had to come up with that in the early 19th century at any rate it's all irrelevant because she uh she creates a stargate and appears on the, uh, let's see, this personal space-time hurls her instantly out of the Milky Way and into a galaxy far, far away. But luckily, it's not a long time ago, so we know we're not in Star Wars land. Well, we might be, but it might be like way after everything we know happens. Right, right. <laughs> um, yeah, so this is... This is a really uh, say what you will about Chris Claremont, but I, I feel like these next couple of pages are pretty well written. Yeah, from a you know from a um, exposition narrative perspective, it's really. In fact, the biggest complaint I have is that when she comes out of the Stargate, she thinks to herself, "Transition took out of me more than I anticipated. My power is considerable and growing, but for this moment, it's still finite. Like it or not, I don't." I still have limits. I'm ravenous before I go on. I need sustenance. So it's kind of like, in my mind, from what we've just seen, she cut her ties with the X-Men. She was heartless and cruel to them. She just flung herself across the galaxy. This takes me back to, like, Jean, thinking about, like, a battle tactic. Mm. Well, 
Okay. I kind of wish like this word balloon just wasn't here. And maybe there was like more narrative that was just like, that just said, like the effects of the Stargate took more out of her than she thought. She's ravenous. She must feed. And then we just go on to the rest. Or it could just be like a, uh, a Phoenix word balloon where she just says, I'm hangry. Right. That's the other problem is that it's not a Phoenix word balloon. So it just kind of takes, I mean, I'm nitpicking, but it just takes me out of the dark Phoenixy mood when she's thinking this. And it also, she's kind of admitting a weakness or something. So she's also taking me out of her omnipotenceness. Well, they have, they have to move this forward. I mean, I know, I know. She has to eat the planet. So the she, sun. she does, yeah, she doesn't eat the planet. She, she she flies into the middle of a sun. Its diameter is a million miles. The temperature is 6,000 degrees centigrade. That's uh, well over 2,000 times that. Uh, the core is 14 million degrees. Normally, this star could expect to live another 6 billion years, but in reality, its future can be measured in a matter of minutes, as it is completely consumed by Dark Phoenix. And a, uh, a planet, the fourth planet in a solar system of 11 planets, uh, an ancient peace-loving civilization, clearly a parallel to Earth, is uh, they, they, they witness the, uh, their sun going out, and then um, do you think these guys are all related to like Han Solo and, and Princess Leia? Why? Well, because it's Star Wars universe. Oh, <laughs> I don't know. They don't look like any Han Solo or Luke's or uh, Princess Leia I've ever seen. <laughs> so on the sun side of the planet, they get a glimpse of their sun going out, and then they die <laughs> immediately. Right. Their sun flares or heat flares, as they call them here, basically expand and boil their planet alive. And uh, those few awake on the night side of the planet are treated to a spectacular once in a lifetime Aurora Borealis before death claims them. But half the world dies in its sleep. They are the lucky ones. This is a very dark issue. It is. Basically. Yeah, I mean, you can't take this back. <laughs> no. And, and that'll become a thing. But yeah, she, her consumption of the star and the after effect shock of the star, uh, it just uh, disintegrates, obliterates, destroys this entire planet of people. Right. Presumably the other three planets as well ahead of this one that I guess didn't contain life. But all right, we we don't we don't know that they so from an from an artistic standpoint, I find it very interesting that they decided to go this route. I mean, did they really want to show how evil? dark phoenix was that she without any sort of thought would just eat the sun despite whatever consequences because from a storytelling perspective they could have easily said like a lifeless planet loses its sun no one's the wiser Do you know what i mean well the, yeah i mean they're 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 trying to show how uh, absolute power corrupts absolutely, and she just doesn't care. Mm. It's just so such a such a real the absolute power that is hers. She is in ecstasy, yet she knows that this is only the beginning. That what she feels now is nothing compared to what she experienced within the great, the grand crystal. She craves that ultimate sensation, and she will pay any price to achieve it once more, including wiping out even more people. Mm. I don't know. It's just uh, it's just something that you don't see in a comic that often. No, it's true. <laughs> uh, but anyways, I, I applaud their decision for it because it really kind of like ups the antes and, and creates some stakes in this comic book. 
But uh, anyways, mm, steaks, <laughs> delicious. Uh, flying right by it is the maiden voyage of the some battle cruiser, a Shi'ar Empire Imperial battle cruiser, first of its class and one of the deadliest warcraft the Empire has ever seen. Yep. And the captain on there says, "Give me tactical." This interior ship design is just stupid. <laughs> like I like the bridge. I like where the captain. I think it's the captain. Is 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 looking at the video screen. you got a couple people behind him that are standing at a control panel, but for some reason you've got three more people that are just, like, elevated. There's no ladder. like a little spaceship in the spaceship. <laughs> There's no ladder or stairs up there, so they have to, like, jump off or something to get up there. <laughs> it's like, why are they up there? There's plenty of floor space for them. It lowers and raises. It's like, like we have so much extra money. What should we do? Ah, I got it. I got it. A little spaceship inside the spaceship. It's gonna be awesome. Um, so do we ever get, do we ever get a, a death count on how many people were on the planet? I don't think it says how many. Maybe mm. it does. Maybe the Shi'ar people are like, there was a million people on that planet. I think we do eventually, but maybe we just haven't yet. I don't know where it was, but the Shi'ar people they note that. The sun looks like it's gone supernova, but it really shouldn't have because they just scanned the star system this morning and everything was fine. Unless something made it. And then they see something flying out of the star. It looks like it is a life form. Main screen, full magnification. There, Juber. (laughs) That must be it. Shara. Shara preserve us. It appears to be humanoid, but what kind of creature is it? Sound Why ba- is it smiling? <laughs> it's smiling. Sound battle stations, Eluk. We will engage. Is that a wise? It is necessary. Dabari was an ally of the Empire science officer. There it is. Five billion people exterminated. Oh, that's more than I thought. By that thing. They must be avenged. It's a stupid so idea. Fire at her. And uh, it doesn't go well. A plasma bolt. Someone shooting at me. Whoever you are, you've just made a big mistake. Scratch one propulsion to sell. I've crippled them. Now to mine, scan the vessel, find out what I'm facing. Well, well it's one of the Lantra's grand fleet. Mighty dog. <laughs> uh, if Captain Jubar wants a fight, then Dark Phoenix will be more than happy to oblige him. Warp power's down to 40%. Weapon areas, weapons are down by half. Same goes for the shield. They're going to be lucky to get out alive. We'd better get out while we can. But the captain's like, do you honestly think we can outrun our foe? Call Lalandra quick! They do. They wake her up, and Lalandra runs, rushes forward to her communications chamber, which I don't know, you think they would have some sort of way for her to communicate directly. She's got a big ball in with Professor Xavier on it, on her desk. <laughs> she does. It's, it's her uh, hollow globe. <laughs> the professor is just constantly smiling at her. I don't need What's him going? here anymore. He's right there. <laughs> How's it going? <laughs> so they head off to the war room. The lander's thinking to herself that Juber is one of his best captains. She trained him herself. If he's using the Instalink, his situation must be serious. Not very Insta if she has to run all the way across the hall to get to it. Nope. So she gets to her bridge, which is a little bit better designed than that starship. There's no ships within a ship here. Lelandra, can you see it? We're beaten. No weapons, no power. My crew, mostly dead. Ship, a ruined, gutted hulk. 
The Incredible Hulk, Bruce Banner. <laughs> What's he doing up there? Entity closing. Take my hand, Juber. My captain, my friend. I think this is the end. I love you. Do you think this is uh, intimating a that Juber and uh, Eluk? Eluk have relationship? Oh my God, of course. That's what you do in the uh, Shi'ar Empire. <laughs> it's not even gay. Everybody just loves each other. Mm. It's just love, Adam. <laughs> Bonky. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I think the Shi'ar have the ability to alter their sexual organs to whichever uh, way it's needed. I think I read that in one of those official Marvel handbook guides. As do, uh, as, do, as do Earthlings. It just takes a little longer and costs more money. Ah, yes. These guys can do it at will, but only three times in their entire lifetime. Hmm. Is it a fact or are you making stuff up? I'm making that up. <laughs> So behind the Eluk and Jubar is the Phoenix effect, which Lilandra recognizes. She recognizes that old friend Phoenix, what we feared from the beginning and prayed we'd never have to face has come to pass. Summon my minister's Chamberlain. The threat must be dealt with once and for all, no matter what the cost. Oh, by the way. We should, we should note that the Phoenix destroys Jubar and Eluk's ship. Yeah, yeah. So more death, everybody. Not only did she destroy a planet, but she also destroyed the premier Shi'arian fleet ship. So it's no holds barred. Yeah. Meanwhile, back at the mansion, uh, the Professor and Warren are not there yet, but the rest of the X-Men are in the kitchen, kind of surrounding Cyclops, who isn't talking to anybody. Beast and Nightcrawler are sitting on the kitchen counter. <sighs> Normally Cyclops would be like, get your feet off the counter. <laughs> Do you know how much the professor pays to keep those clean right now? He... Ever, ever since we returned from New York, Scott has just sat there, not eating, not speaking. He is taking this very hard, Aurora. If there was only way we could, some way we could help. I'm no good at helping. Wolverine. Don't get your hopes up, Petey. I'm going to grab a brewski. <laughs> Anybody want brews? Uh, interestingly enough, he does not open the can with his claws. He actually uses the pop top, as you're supposed to. <laughs> I may be stubborn, Aurora, but I ain't stupid. I'm a realist and realistically genie trash just without even raising a sweat. You think a rematch will end any differently? It might, short stuff. Teamwork will help, and I think I could whip up some gadgets that could make the odds a bit more equal. A bit? That's better than nothing, Fuzzy. Who are you, who are you calling Fuzzy? <laughs> You're fuzzier than I am. At least I'm wearing clothes. You're always wearing underwear. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Cyclops wakes up from his stupor and says, Oh no, no. It's Phoenix. I can censor in my mind through the psionic report. It's back to being psionic. <laughs> we share. She's returning to Earth and she's hangry. She's not angry. She's hungry. No, she's hangry. Hungry. It's a combination of hungry and oh. angry. She's hangry. Please don't tell me your book doesn't say hangry. My book doesn't say hangry, <laughs> but I wish it did. In fact, I'm going to be very clever. And she's hangry. <laughs> Since you've got a library version of it, you should like Sharpie in that to be hangry <laughs> and put it back on the shelf. The next person will be like, what? Really? Did they use hangry here? Next issue. Child of light and darkness. Yes. Next issue is going to be crazy. There you go, everybody. A well-written issue, I think. It was a classic. Absolutely. Just, uh, and I like what you pointed out uh, that like half the comic book 
doesn't feature the X-Men. Well, it's it's it feels like half, but it's probably more like a third. Well, it's it's a, it's a good chunk of the comic book, uh, and it's mostly just dealing with laying out the story and and dealing out some some consequences. So I don't know. I just thought this was a, a very well written uh, issue. So clearly, uh, Claremont and Byrne are just like probably at their creative apexes here. Phoenix, she be bad. Yeah, she's 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 a she's a bad mother. Do we get any email this week? Uh, we did not get any email. We got a response to episode one seventeen by Nick, who says, "Just started listening to you guys about a year ago. Listen to every podcast up to this newest. You guys do a great job. Been going to my local comic shop and getting the issues now, so I can read along. Keep up the good work." Sweet. Which makes me wonder, is he getting the legit issues or is he buying the essentials or is that could be pretty expensive? <laughs> I don't know. This day with in today's comic uh market, there's only a few key issues that are gonna run you a whole bunch of money. The rest you could probably pick up for just a few dollars. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> but we're doing the early ones, so I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. Um Is it even possible to find a copy of one thirty five or one thirty four these days? eBay. But he's going to his local comic shop. So just out of curiosity, I'm going to I am going to go to eBay and I am going to see what X-Men number 135 would go for. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> did you know you can buy Cyclops replica visor for 350 bucks? <laughs> no, I did not know that. That's awesome. When I was a kid, I made my own Cyclops visor out of a, of a ski mask, some yellow cellophane, and some duct tape. And I thought that was awesome. Did you know that you could buy, you can now buy a life-size Han Solo in carbonite statue? Yeah, I think I did, actually. I think it's like $15,000 or something. So, all right. So here's a copy of X-Men number 135. Uh, It's not CGC'd or anything like that. Uh, I can't get, I mean, from the picture on eBay, it looks like it's in pretty good quality, or or, I mean, uh, uh, condition. Uh, Sold for $11. That's not bad. Yeah. This is like a very um, serviceably, serviceable looking issue. However, another one that is not CGC, but the unprofessional person is rating it at a 9.6. This one sold for $86. Wow. But again, it's not CGC. It's just some guy who's like, this is a 9.6. So whatever that means. Well, he got his money. So, so I'm betting he's buying maybe like the uh, like collections or something. Yeah, and as I'm going through this, my feeling is that like you can't buy the essentials. Like you've got to see all these in full color. Well, you can you can do what you want. No, some comic <laughs> books like like uh, The Walking Dead or the early Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Those are those were created for a black and white medium, which means they emphasize certain hash marks and shading and shadowing so that it all kind of feels doesn't feel like color but there's depth in those images but when i have been re-releasing all the earliest uh teenage mutant turtles in full color have they yeah i've been picking them up they're actually quite nice are they well then maybe that blows my theory out of the water because when i read the essentials they're very flat because you know they're just outlines essentially uh for the coloring and 
a lot of these stories I just don't remember, and I think it's because I just, I don't know, it was missing the full coloredness. But I believe, and I could be wrong about this, that you can get a copy of Walking Dead number one in color as well, like they printed a special version. Yeah, I believe that. Well, whatever. Read your X-Men in color. I, like, I, read, I first read all the uh, classic X-Men in black and white. The Essentials? And, and yeah, The Essentials. And uh, I, that... You know, eventually I would have gone back and read them in color. I, I, I believe that the content kind of forces you to have to do it. I agree. That's, that's my opinion. Classic X-Men number 41 from December of, I don't know, 1989. December of 1989 on sale September 26, 1989. So this is a warning to the listener that there there's only like three or four classic X-Men stories left. And then we're done. Thank God. But the next few stories focus on things that in our continuity we won't hear about for a long time. So I guess this is a spoiler warning, but probably you'll also forget about this by then. Probably. This one's called, well, actually, we should talk about the cover first. It's a, uh, it's a Steve Lytle. It's Phoenix kind of blasting back. The X-Men, it's not good. No, it's not one of his best. I'm not sure what's going on with Storm's costume, but it's not the costume she had on in the comic book. I like how Wolverine is upside down. <laughs> yeah, so it's it's not good. The inside piece is the uh, Phoenix effect kind of blasting through the sun and then the sun's ripple effect destroying the planet. That's kind of cool. It's good. It's just most, it's, it's all orange and yellow. So it's a nice yeah, it's, it's, it's color. All, it's like a two color <clears throat> painting of sorts. So that's, that's cool. Uh, the story that we're going to go through is called little boy lost and it's written by Chris Claremont. It's penciled by Mike Collins, inked by Joe Rubenstein, lettered by Mike Kessler looks yeah Heisler or Keisler I don't know oh there's an I in there and then uh, colored by Glynis Oliver good old Glynis Oliver so we uh we open up at uh, an orphanage there's a fight brewing yeah between Nate and um that other kid <laughs> some other kid whose name I Toby Toby so as soon as I saw that it's written by Chris Claremont and as soon as I saw that this is Scott's orphanage and as soon as I saw that one of the guys in the fight's name was Nate. I was like, I know where this is going. <laughs> I've never read this story before. I've read some things about the orphanage and what they retconned the orphanage into be. So whatever. I don't know how I feel about all of it because it seems to ruin Cyclops's whole origin. But but I guess this could be considered more uh, X Men origin or Cyclops origin. Anyways, uh, Scott, who does not have his powers yet, but he's getting headaches and he's getting nausea and stuff like that. He feels for Nate for some reason, so he feels the need to jump in and defend Nate. Well, I don't think it's just Nate. I think he, this this Cyclops, uh, at this point in his life, would do this for anybody. You're right. He's just he's just helping people out for some reason. And so the guy punches him out, basically. Scott does his best. It isn't enough. And that's when the principal or whoever this superintendent guy is shows up and figures out that it's uh, Toby Rails is the instigator, so he gets sent to the administrator's office and Summers gets sent to the nurse. She's new. Her name is Robin Hanover. And uh, that's where we see Scott's first mention of his, his painful eyes. <laughs> My painful eyes. Uh, they're talking a little bit back and forth. He says that he doesn't even think he likes Nate all that much. So he doesn't know why he does this sort of thing. What does this poster say? Stay healthy. Don't overeat. <laughs> is that what it says? Yeah. Don't 
Yeah, it does say don't even overeat. Yeah. There's a tooth teeth brushing poster on the wall with a giant smile. So he doesn't really like uh, Nate. Pretty stinking attitude, huh, Doc? Comes natural around here. And then we get a nightmare that Scott is having where he's trapped on the ceiling and saving Nate from uh, what looks to be like his parents reaching up for him through some sort of flames. The one thing I don't particularly care for in this issue is that Scott Summers does not look like Scott Summers. No, he really doesn't. He looks like, uh, I guess... More like it doesn't look like anybody really. Yeah, in the last panel, he looks like an old man. But... I was gonna say Bobby Drake, but mm. no, he looks he looks like a tall, thin, uh, Darren unbewitched. <laughs> kind of, yeah. Uh, the Dick York Darren. Yeah. So um, he is Nate is in his dream. Nate is falling, and Scott is trying to hold him. And I think he sees his parents. And he wakes up. No, and Nate is. Sitting next to him and comforting him. It's, it was only a dream, pal. The real world's fine. You're fine. And it's when the nurse shows up and pulls uh, Scott aside and says she wants to she wants to help out. But Toby's there and he makes fun of Nate for being so friendly to Scott. Nate and Scotty sitting in a tree. Well, that's because Nate's like, uh, you stay away from my Scott. This is my Scott. And well, uh, Scott's like. He doesn't directly say that, but yeah, that's kind of the thing. Scott had a bad dream, but he's awake now. Nothing to worry about. And his facial expression there. And the nurse is like, I'm a nurse, so if you don't mind, I'll take over from here. We're getting the idea that Nate's kind of weird. Yeah. And that's when they... Kind of obsessed with Scott. That's when they start singing the song, and Nate hangs back, and he says something like, you're making a mistake, doctor. Very silly. And then we see Toby walking, sulking alone in the hallway, and he gets picked up by some guy that we've never met. He calls himself Mr. Sinister, but I don't know what that means. So, spoilers, uh, <laughs> this is, uh, this is uh, Mr. Sinister is being inserted into the origin of Scott Summers. Well, I mean, this feeds right into a bunch of stuff that happens later on. That I right. I can't wait till we get I, I can but I can't wait till we get there because I've only read bits and pieces of the story and what I've read of like his overall plot just seems needlessly complicated. <laughs> the X Men needlessly complicated. <laughs> well, and I think it's because like they had written so much stuff and they were like you know purposely being like misleading as to what Mister Sinister's true purpose was and then spoilers of course there's Scott's child and that whole storyline and at some point they decided to tie it all together when you read that you're like what none of this <laughs> makes any sense you're telling me this guy waited around for 20 30 years to pull off this plan and, and it like fails in a day <laughs> i don't know <laughs> i just i don't probably have all the details right but anyways it's whatever <laughs> well mr sinister is apparently going to deal with toby somehow but we don't know how yet, and he doesn't. Uh, I guess we'll find out later. Uh, we go. We cut back to the nurse, who is still kind of exploring the mystery of Scott Summers and the story that he was kidnapped by aliens. And the the chief administrator confronts her and says, uh, "I don't mind that you're messing around with Scott Summers, but 
you're supposed to handle all the students equally. Also, you need a longer skirt and stop wearing sneakers. <laughs> yeah. And he wasn't happy that she was the one that was chosen, but he'll deal with it. And she thinks to herself, perfectly legit invitation, perfectly respectable man. So why does he make me feel so creepy? And at this point, this administrator guy could be Mr. Sinister. We don't know. Yeah, that's what it seems like they're alluding to. So she completely ignores his advice and invites Scott to her office and hangs up a picture of an airplane. And Scott's like, you can fly. I want to fly. I love airplanes. And she's like connecting to Scott and, you know, having a breakthrough. But then it look, then all of a sudden they discover that Toby Rails is up on the roof and it looks like he's about to jump. And, uh, of course, Scott decides that he's the one who needs to go to the rescue. Meanwhile, Nate is kind of like, I don't know, he's he's given, uh, he's given the nurse kind of the cold shoulder. I just want to be your friend, Nate. You figure you ask nice and sweet, uh, sweet, I'm yours, just like Scott. I don't buy that easy. Aren't we the little hard case? Is it me? Or that I've somehow come between him and Scott? Scott, where is he? Oh, my Lord, Scott! So Scott's up on the roof. He's trying to talk Toby off the ledge. And Toby doesn't quite appear to be completely in charge of his facilities. And he jumps off. Scott grabs him, isn't able to hold him, and Toby falls to his death. Thud. Thud. And uh, apparently Scott stays up there for the rest of the night. The nurse goes up there, says to talk to Jean. And... Jean? I mean, uh, whoops. <laughs> Cyclops. They just watch the ambulance leave, and then they talk about the sunset. How it seems like it looks like it's on fire. It's lovely. All I can think of is that somewhere something's burning, and somebody's losing something precious to the flames. He can't hold on to anything. The harder he tries, the, easy, the more easily they slip out of his fingers. You said, I acted like a hero before. If I was any good at it, if I really was one, maybe Toby'd still be here. She says, you did your best. He's like, goody for me. It was Toby's choice to jump, Scott. But I wonder but if... I wonder if he's the reason you're being so hard on yourself. From what you've told me, falling in flames and especially dropping someone whose life depends on you are the key components of your nightmare. And he walks, Scott walks off with Nate and Nate gives a stinky face to uh, the nurse. Eh? What's your problem, Nate? What a look. If they could kill just the same as the one the other night in Scott's room that he gave Toby. And despite herself, Robin Hanover shivers as though she's just looked into her own freshly dug grave. Next. <laughs> when dreams are dust. And oh, yes. No, it's a two-parter. It is a two-parter. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess... My thought is that at this point in the editor's room, they're like, this classic X-Men thing isn't really selling well, or it's not selling enough to justify this backup story. So let's figure out a point where we can stop doing it. And they pick the end of the Dark Phoenix story. So I think they're like, well, what should we fill these pages with? That's when they came up with some Mr. Sinister backstory. So I don't think it really makes any sense to do that here. They are. Well, we'll find out next week. No, it's a Mr. Sinister story. I know, but we'll find out <laughs> next week if it makes sense. Oh, that, that I can't tell you. I didn't actually read ahead. But uh, speaking of reading, Adam, did you do any additional reading? 
I read Avengers number 196 and 197. Uh, 196 was a continuation of last week's Taskmaster story where we meet the Taskmaster and we discover that his special ability is that he is able to do anything he sees without like having to learn to do it. So like he he has studied a whole bun- a bunch of superheroes so that he has all their abilities. He can like uh, he has the agility of uh, Spider-Man and Daredevil and can throw a shield as strong as Cap and stuff like that. Huh. Meanwhile, uh, Beast and Wonder Man are becoming pals. Uh, in this issue, and the Avengers, of course, save the day, defeat Taskmaster. Taskmaster escapes. Avengers 197 is a day in the life of the Avengers, and it begins with the Avengers stuck in an elevator. It's hilarious. (laughs) There's yet another reference to Godzilla, this time issue number 14, proving yet again that Godzilla is (laughs) in the Marvel Universe. Funny. Uh, Beast and Wonder Man go on a double blind date. Uh, I guess it's a it's a Beast sets up a blind date with for for Wonder Man with a girl that he's already dating, and it turns out that Wonder Man date Wonder Man's date has a kid that she has brought along on the date. Recognizes Wonder Man as Mr. Muscles and gets all excited, and Wonder Man's like really annoyed about this whole thing. At first, he's like. Uh, this girl is actually kind of cute. I may have I may have struck gold. And then he's like, she's a mother? What? Funny. It's all mad. You mean you're married? And she's like, no. Uh, is Someone she... couldn't handle me having a child. Wait, so is she divorced? Is she married? Or is she just a single mother? She's divorced. Okay. Wow, so they're dealing with that in the comic books? Yeah, in like a, a, a kind of a comedy sort of thing. Mm. We'll never see this character again. No, oh, okay. Basically, Wonder Man's date is a disaster. <laughs> and then on the last page, we discover that Miss Marvel has uh, is mysteriously three months pregnant. Whoa! Dun, dun. Is she pregnant with Rogue? <laughs> no. <laughs> that would be pretty cool, though. It would be. And uh, and that's we're we're pretty much caught up as far as chronology goes so next month or next week when we do the august 1980 issue of x-men i'm going to do the august 1980 of avengers oh so it'll be it'll be like we're we're in sync we've got some dazzler coming up soon don't we not for a while dazzler really? didn't start until march of 1981 so oh. we got a, we got a couple of months or uh weeks to go Perfect. That's less work for me. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Anything else you need to add to this one? No, just that I'm Phoenix and I'm deadly. Until next week. Mad Phoenix. The danger room is closed. There is a power beyond good and evil. The power to create and the power to destroy. Jean, can you hear me? Jean Grey can hear nothing. Speak only to the Phoenix. Jean, fight it. Use the powers of your mind. Remember what we mean to each other. Jean, please, don't leave me. Scott, Scott, help me. Enough! You are of no use to me. 